as you remember, all little chips began as big chips, right? So the chips are made by dicing a wafer. And the wafer is, for most of the chips you and I deal with, are again at 300 millimeter in diameter. And the chips are punched out like your mother would punch out cookies from cookie dough. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Andrew Feldman is co-founder and the CEO of Cerebrus Systems, where he builds giant computers dedicated to training large machine learning models. We really get into how his computers work, and I hope you learn as much from this as I did. Well, I guess before I get into it, for people that don't know, maybe you can introduce your company and tell us how you started it. First, Lucas, thanks for inviting me to chat. Appreciate it. My name's Andrew Feldman. I'm one of the founders and I'm the CEO at Cerebrus Systems. Cerebrus builds big, fast computers, big, fast accelerators for AI work. And we founded in early 2016. We adopted a very unusual approach. We chose to build a very big chip, in fact, the largest chip in the history of chip building. It's about the size of a dinner plate when most people built chips the size of postage stamps. The results were that we were able to put this chip into a system and write software for it that takes customers TensorFlow or PyTorch and runs it blisteringly fast. And we now have customers in the US and in Asia and in Europe and recently announced that we put a collection of these machines together to build a giant AI supercomputer that's being used by multiple different customers. So what we do is we try and make AI compute extraordinarily fast. What's the advantages of having a one gigantic chip? First, as you remember, all little chips began as big chips, right? So the chips are made by dicing a wafer. And the wafer is, for most of the chips you and I deal with, are again at 300 millimeter in diameter. And the chips are punched out like your mother would punch out cookies from cookie dough. What's interesting is then for large AI work, we have to try and stitch them back together again, right? One chip isn't enough. And so we then expend tremendous effort trying to tie these chips that earlier in the manufacturing process, we cut up in discrete elements. We try to reassemble them in the form of a cluster. And it turns out that that's rather bad strategy on a chip, on a processor, one communicates very quickly and for very little power, femtojoules per bit. When you have to leave a chip's boundary, you have to leave, you have to do all this work, this encoding, and you have to push it out either with a Surtees or over some other technology. It travels sometimes over an interposer or a copper wire that's embedded in a motherboard or sometimes out an optical switch. That's really slow thousands of times slower. So if you can keep the traffic on your chip, you're thousands of times faster at a thousand the power draw. And so by building a big chip, we were able to keep a huge amount of the work that usually leaves chip boundaries and slows down training. We're able to keep it on the chip and do work much faster at much lower power. I have so many questions on that topic. But before we get into it, what are maybe the downsides of having one gigantic chip? Like, why doesn't everyone do it that way? Ironically, lots of people had tried and everybody had failed previously. It's hard. In the chip making process, there are naturally occurring flaws in the wafer. And these flaws were like your mother rolled out cookie dough into a round circle that was 300 millimeters of diameters and threw up a handful of M&Ms. They landed in your cookie dough. Imagine you're allergic to chocolate and you couldn't eat any of the cookies that had a, an M&M in them. Now, historically, the answer to that was to say, we're going to bake the cookie, we're going to dice in the cookies, and we're going to throw out the ones with M&Ms. We're going to throw out the ones with flaws or sell them for less. And for most people, this meant in their mind that as your chip got bigger, the yield dropped. As the cookie that your mother cut out got bigger, the probability that it hit 
an M&M was larger. And if you had to throw out the cookie, you had to throw out more cookie dough. That was really bad. We invented a technique that rather than relying on perfect cookies, cookie dough without any M&Ms, we invented a technique to withstand the flaws. And that hadn't been done before. And the result was we didn't need perfect. We didn't need this thing that nobody could ever could get. And so we used a different type of thinking. And ironically, it's the same thinking that Google put to work years ago. They looked at servers and said, people are building these extremely expensive servers that are highly reliable. What if instead we use lots of cheap servers and when we failed, we just routed around them? We could build this at vastly lower cost and achieve better reliability. And so that same approach of recognizing there are going to be failures, they're unavoidable, and inventing techniques to withstand or that are robust to those failures. Ours was to route around, to have some redundancy. That enabled us to be the first company ever to yield a chip this large. And it's not just a little bit larger, it's 56 times larger than the largest other chip ever built. To give you an idea, we have about 2.6 trillion transistors and the largest GPU has 50 billion, right? So we're 2.55 trillion transistors larger. Okay. So Andrew, I'm curious what parts of this you had in mind when you started the company. And that was back in 2016, right? Was it, was yeah. see this like, I just want to make like a gigantic chip <laughs> or was it like, you know, I want to make something for machine no. le- learning workloads or no. what? Yeah. What was it? We saw the rise of AI and we got it wrong a hundred ways, but what we got right was that in 2016, AI was utterly unimportant in the economy and that it would be enormously important going forward. And we saw that. And we saw that deep learning in particular is constructed in a way founded on sparse linear algebra and that the GPU wasn't the perfect machine for that that the GPU was a machine that was built for a different type of workload. And what we saw was an opportunity to build a machine that was better suited, that was optimized in every way for this one thing, this sort of deep learning workload. And ironically, that was the history of the GPU when they started. They saw an opportunity to build a machine optimized for graphics, right? And that was exactly a strategy 25 years ago. And over those 25 years, they tuned and they optimized, but the graphics market stalled and it isn't growing like it was. So then they looked around for other things. We saw this new work. It was not particularly well suited for the GPU. It was very poorly suited for a CPU. And we thought that we could build a machine that was perfect for it. And we knew, we didn't know that we would go to wafer scale, but we knew that what is hard about this work from a computer architecture perspective isn't the calculations, it's the moving of information. And that's really what computers do. They calculate, they store, they move information, and that's it. And what's hard for this problem isn't the calculation. Mostly we do multiplies and accumulates, right? Most of this work is matrix, linear algebra. That's not hard for a machine. What's hard for most existing machines is you got to move those results in and out of memory to other processors that are in another rack or in another row. or And that movement we knew was a problem that had to be solved in optimizing the architecture. That's what we worked on. And that's why we our special sauce is around the moving of data and that keeping it in one location on the way. You mentioned the word sparse. Like, is there something about the sparsity that you also handle? Because my understanding of a GPU is it wouldn't really handle sparse data in a special way. It would just leave all the zeros in place. There are trade-offs we all make in the design of hardware. One of the trade-offs the GPU makes is it has relatively little memory bandwidth. What it wants to do is move a fair bit of data in work on it and move the results out. What it doesn't want to do is move things back and forth a lot. To do that, what they do is they sort of are founded on something called blast three 
computations, they move data in and do a giant matrix multiplier. And they do that as a technique to overcome the weakness of limited memory bandwidth. We have tens of thousands of times more memory bandwidth than they do. And we don't have to move in huge blocks of data at a time. So we can do not just matrix by matrix, but matrix by vector, or even scalar times vector, AX plus Y. And if you can have such fine-grained control, you never need to multiply by zero. You can block them out. And so a way to think about that is if you only move pallets of boxes, and sometimes a box is empty, you're still going to put it on the pallet. You're still going to drive it across the country. But if you have the ability to weigh every single box Mm -hmm. before you do anything with it, before you ship it, all right? then you would never ship empty boxes, right? And that's why we have the advantage and that ability to get to the fine-grained control that says this is a zero. Multiplying by zero is boneheaded. It's about as boneheaded a thing as you can do in compute. It takes time and power, gives you no new information. Because we can have this massive memory bandwidth, it allows us to have this fine-grained control that says, we're going to knock out zero, not multiply it by it. Whereas the GPU brings all the data in, zeros included, multiplies it, takes it all out. Is your natural representation then sparse matrices or sparse we, tensors typically? We can run sparse or dense, but when provided with sparse, we harvest sparsity by meaning we get a performance boost because we're not wasting time multiplying by zero. Published in full work, it's on our published a series of blogs at NeurIPS showing that we could train models that were 90% sparse to state-of-the-art accuracy, including GPT models. And they took far fewer flops to do it and could be done in much less time. So even at 90% sparsity, the sparse math is faster? Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's still pretty dense. I'm 90% surprised. sparse means 90% of the weights are zeros. And so you, what you're left with is 10% of the weights. It is much faster. Wow. And so I guess, how should I think about the chip that you're making? Is it like you've printed a whole bunch of smaller chips all in a grid and they all talk to each other? What's the best way to think about what you make? Yes. This is the chip. So it's see, it just how big it is. Uh-huh. Love it. My wife says I'm like a kid with his dirt bike that he got for Christmas and he rides it into his room at night. And he's always got one nearby him. As you should be, by oh. the way. <laughs> it only costs 250 million to make the first one. So there, yes, it is constructed of smaller flashes of steps. And that's because the equipment at the fab and that equipment is made by ASML and our fabs TSMC, but the steppers can only do about 830, 840 square millimeters. And so what we invented were techniques to overlap the stepping. And when you were done, even though you're using an 850 square millimeter plus or minus stamper, what you've got is the behavior of sort of one giant chip, not a bunch of little chips. And I guess, what do the instructions even look like for this? I guess you have a whole bunch of things running in parallel. Are they all on the same timer? They are. There's one clock in one clock distribution. So it's the speed of light is what? It's like a... like a um, <laughs> In one clock cycle, can you go from one edge of your chip to the other? No. How do you even keep the clock synchronized? What does that even mean to be synchronized? That's actually a really interesting question. And there are certainly people on our team who are Sean and Gary and Michael, JP and Michael Morrison, who are far more knowledgeable than I am. Sure. And I wouldn't say I'm an expert, so feel free to... Machine has 850,000 independent processors, independent cores on it. Each core has its own memory. And we call that a tile or a programmable element. Each core has links to its neighbors, east and north and south and west, as well as redundant links that skip a neighbor to northeast, southeast, northwest, southwest. It is going to 
take a few clock cycles to move across the chip. There is skew, right? So everybody gets the same clock, but there is a delay in its propagation. But it's known because we know where everything is. And so that information can be used, corrected for, and taken advantage of. So all it's a synchronous design, and there's only one clock domain. And did you have to come up with your own instruction set for this? We did, yeah, come up with our own instruction set. We wanted an instruction set that didn't have a bunch of stuff that you don't need. In computer architecture, one of the first steps to decide what you're going to be bad at, right? what you're not going to do, right? We're not going to be a database machine. We're not going to, this is work that we're not going to do. And instructions that make that type of thing faster or better, we don't want to carry with us. And so by just putting a line around what you're not going to be good at, really forced you to focus on what you are going to be good at and how can you focus your energy on those things you're going to be really good at. So how do you treat tensors as first-class citizens? How do you have a technique to add randomness and hardware? What are the things that can help this workload and bring nothing else forward? And that's how you're efficient, is when you are using your instructions for exactly the type of work that you're asking the machine to do. And I guess, what are the workloads where your machine really shines? Like, well, I don't know, feel free to brag a little bit, but what, are, like, what's the, what am I doing where I'm like, wow, this is just so much better than anything else I could do? All right. There was a paper published at the Supercompute Show. It was published by Argonne National Labs, and it compared us to a 2,000-node A100 cluster called Polaris. And the problem was really interesting. It was to use a large NLP network a GPT-J style network to predict mutations in the COVID virus. How cool is that? What they did is they put the entire genome, 30,000 base pairs, and when encoded, it was a sequence length of 10,240 in the attention window, in the long sequence window. When they ran GPT style networks at 250 million, at 2.5 billion, and at 25 billion parameters. And on this network, we were 832 times faster than a GPU for the little, for the 250 million parameter version. The 2000 node cluster couldn't do big parameter size and long attention sequences. It barfed, it ran out of memory. And we ran it at 2.5 billion and at 25 billion. Now, this paper won the most prestigious award in academic computing, the Gordon Bell Prize. So, there was an example where four, eight, and 16 of our machines could do things that thousands of GPUs couldn't do. And so, I guess what was unusual about this situation, right? Because I think these networks, GPTJ, is typically trained on these A100s and then typically in long input. The MSI. Right. And what happens is that puts pressure on the calculation done in the attention head. You're doing an analysis that you're understanding each gene in this case within the context of the entire genome. If you're doing it in a more traditional language sense, you'd be analyzing this word within the context of a page or a chapter or an entire play, an entire book. And that combination of very long sequence lengths, which is the relevance window, the attention window, plus big parameters was brutally memory intensive and caused the GPUs to barf. Okay, this is a dumb question. I feel a little bit ashamed to just say it, but I'm a occasional dabbler in training machine learning models. And you know, you haven't sent me one of your systems, but if you did, I would happily use it and endorse it. I, I can be bought with a lot of compute. But um, I, I appreciate people who are honest about, about their saleability. I would be so pumped if you wanted to give me one. But I have used TPUs and I've used a lot of GPUs. And my experience with TPUs is they do seem like they're faster in some cases, but I feel like every detail is just painful. Like when I try to use them, like the you know, the error messages are kind of weird and I'm not like a real hardware guy. And so it's just, it always just feels like frustrating. Like when I deal with them and there's also, it feels like there's this lag between, you know, when my 
when I start my training and then there's like this kind of like long pause and then I get like a weird error message I don't understand. And then I have to go back through that, that loop, I guess, like, I would imagine I might worry with your system. If you sent me one, if I wasn't on your payroll, it would be that it's going to be like even more like that, where it's just like really hard to like experiment and mess around with it. That's a real challenge with TPUs. And I think we've worked really hard to make it painless. I think in all honesty, we probably have not succeeded completely, right? There's going to be some things that are a little bit different. But I think you shouldn't have periods of concern once you hit compile, but whether it's A compiled or B crashed and you're not quite sure yet. And I know people have complained to me about that on the TPUs. We work really hard to make the error messages reasonable. We've worked really hard to make the documentation sort of thoughtful and to comply with PyTorch semantics. And you should be able to take PyTorch and compile in a straightforward manner. Is that true for every network you can think of? No. For the large NLP networks, GPT-2, GPT-3, starting at 1.3, 6.7, 13, 20 billion, GPT-Js, 5, BERT. For the big NLP networks you care about, it, it should be pretty darn close to push button. Now, again, I'm not you know the world's expert on this stuff, but I feel like one of the trade-offs PyTorch made was to sort of allow you to execute even like arbitrary Python in, in the middle of a training run, which I love. We wish they would take that away. <laughs> I, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, do, you, do you sort of subset like what you can do in, in oh, Perf to make sure, sure. people don't cause those problems? We're going to kick that out to a host processor for sure. Running, that was a terrible decision. And for everybody in AI, that was a terrible decision to let you to put in arbitrary Python code. That's problematic. We spoke to the leadership at Facebook. They'd been trying to find a way to allow quick and easy compilation of that. It's a known challenge for everybody who's building accelerators. We have a methodology where we kick that out and run it on a host processor and then bring the work back. But it's unpleasant. We wish there were a solution for that. And we thank you for bringing that up. That's <laughs> one of the problems where the early TensorFlow and even early PyTorch didn't really think hard about compilation. And the uh, people who love Python love it, in fact, because it abstracts so nicely away from anything hardware. And that's exactly why it's so difficult to compile. And whereas C or lower level languages are more straightforward to compile because they force the author to contemplate data structures and where your memory is. And these things are really important. So a trade-off was made in favor of more users writing more code on Python and PyTorch and TensorFlow, which are Pythonic, but they are by nature and by, because of the fact that they didn't really think hard early on about lowering how you'd lower it, how you would deliver it to an intermediate representation that we could all agree on. MLIR is a good step forward. And Chris Latimer's work there is really important to the industry. And there's others behind that. But allowing us to lower a framework and keep all the information that's important, right? That's what you want. And sometimes it's hard. Compilers are hard. Because you, you were smart not to build them. No, it's a very impressive thing. You know, it's funny. From where I sit, I think I really see the trade-off, right? Because I think TensorFlow is probably a little bit more designed by people thinking about the hardware maybe than PyTorch because, you know, I feel like PyTorch kind of made it simple for an idiot like me to just put like printouts in the code. And that's probably like part of why, like, I think PyTorch, you know, got so much popularity, but it certainly came at a cost. But I'm curious, like when I look at, you know, our own user data, you know, I think you have more advanced users than us, but we have pretty advanced users. I see all kinds of really simple to fix issues with the hardware they're using that even I could fix. Like I see lots of our users not even saturating <laughs> simple, expensive, you know, NVIDIA resources that they have. And I guess by the time someone comes to you and, and buys your chips, they're, maybe they're like experts at doing it, but I would imagine that people probably still have trouble really getting like all the performance or even like just using like the entire um, chip that you offer. Lucas, I think a couple of things. I think one of the things that big neural networks brought was they added a dimension of distributed computing to AI, right? When you could sit on a single processor 
there wasn't the distributed compute element. But today, if you want to take, I don't know, a 20 billion parameter network and put it on 256 GPUs, you are going to spend months with Horovod, with other tools, thinking about how to distribute work and measuring latencies. And I mean, it's painful. We take away all of that. Whether you run on one machine or 16 machines or more or less, you do no distributed computing work. And so one of the things our compiler does is it allocates work onto the wafer. And so that was something we automated and as a result have very high utilization. And so that's something our compile stack has elements that look like EDA tools. It looks like CAD tools, right? We're going to place work awfully onto the wafer layer by layer so that it achieves very high utilization and you don't have to think about it. The complexity involved in running a large network on a cluster of GPUs is really significant. You're going to begin doing some data parallel stuff, and then you're going to run out of that. Then you're going to go to model parallel, tensor model parallel, and then maybe you're going to go to pipeline model parallel. And so now you've got a three-dimensional problem of parallelization and is what's hard about doing big networks. It's not the design of the networks. It's the distributed computing that is mind-numbingly difficult. And that's something that we've been able to take to zero. We've eliminated it completely. You know, I feel like in this last year, we've seen a number of ML-focused chip companies go out of business. What are your thoughts on like what? Thank you for bringing up good times, <laughs> Lucas. No, I. Well, it's I a little funny, right? Because you know, it's like in the middle of an ML boom, and you know, you look at like I think everyone sort of marvels at the the hold that Nvidia has on the market. It also seems incredibly challenging to me to make chips, right? Because you sort of have to predict what the market's going to do like years in advance. But I feel like everyone making ML chips at least got something really right, which is that there's going to be like incredible demand for compute. So I guess I'm like teeing up a real softball here for you. But yeah, what do you feel like you got right that other people were missing? Because other people had that same insight as you in sense of ML being important. They did. I think there have been some real challenges. I think two reasons that some chip companies have really struggled. The first is what they built wasn't sufficiently better. I think as a startup, being a little bit better or a little bit cheaper is a terrible place to be, especially for hardware, because NVIDIA pays less to have their chips made right? They were the largest buyers of silicon in the world. They have huge partnerships with TSMC and with Samsung. So paying less for your per square millimeter of silicon, they get access to new geometries, new steps in fabrication first. And you've done something that is a little better than a GPU and is mostly a GPU. And you get to market and it's a little better. And they just cut their price a little bit. And everyone scratches their head and says, why move for a little bit of gain? That's one of the reasons some of the companies have struggled is they're just not better enough. And we chose a very different approach. And the approach had more risk in engineering. Every company that had ever tried to build a chip this big had failed, including Gene Amdahl's company, a company called Trilogy. But we knew that If we built it, we were profoundly differentiated. And it's a real question for the entrepreneurs in your audience, where do you want to fall? You want to do a project that's a little easier, but that's a little less differentiated? Or you want to do a project that's got much more technical risk, but if you can get through the technical risk, you have a product that is profoundly differentiated. And so I think those were some of the things that we thought about, and we have a clear opinion. We believe we want the risk. We talk about it in the building. We want our engineers to hold the invention risk, and we want them to do something extraordinary. We're not afraid of failing. We're afraid of succeeding at ordinary stuff, at the mediocre. And so we didn't want to build a slightly better GPU. We wanted to build something different that crushed AI work. And so that's what sort of fires us up. And so we chose a much harder strategy. We chose an approach that required us to raise more money, an approach that 
had long periods of time when we were unsure if we could solve the problem. But when we did solve it, we had a solution that was clearly differentiated and empirically better. And I guess you've been doing this long enough that chip manufacturing has improved. ML's changed a lot. Like how many versions of your hardware have you actually like created? We began with a test wafer and that allowed us to test some of our ideas. And from there, we did our first chip and that was at 16 nanometers. And then we did seven nanometer version and that's what we're selling. And you got to run down next we five and three, and that's the path. We're pretty good at making chips. It's something we're pretty good at. One thing I marvel at with NVIDIA, I'm sorry to bring up a competitor so many times, but one thing that always amazes me is, you know, I feel like new versions of CUDA then come out and I'm just like baffled by the performance gains that they're able to get on the same hardware. And it would make me think that if I was in your shoes, I would need like a huge, it'd be a huge undertaking, not just in the chip. And I guess not even just in the compiler, but I don't even know what layer you call like CUDA and the sort of like kernel. Low kernels, yeah. The microcode. Yeah. I mean, so how do you think about like even allocating resources among those undertakings? Well, first, NVIDIA has most of the market share. So I think it's perfectly reasonable we talk about them. And it's true that when they bring out new hardware, it takes months and sometimes years for them to drive up the utilization as they write new microcode. That's the software, that's the machine language that runs right on the actual hardware. I'm a professional David in the wars with Goliath in the chip industry. This isn't unique to them. This is true. You have to know that going in, right? That they're going to come out, they're going to do predatory pre-announces, going to BS and say their chip got seven times faster when you know, if you don't get seven times more I.O., it'll never get seven times faster. And they're going to do a whole bunch of stuff and they're going to throw stones. And underneath all the marketing BS, they're actually going to make their product better step after step if they're a well-executing company. And NVIDIA is a well-executing company. And so you have to know that going in. And so you have to have a, an architecture that's much better. You have to be ready for it. That's nothing you described as a surprise. It's the way the computer industry is run from processing chips for 40 years, is that the hardware is the engine and the software is the brains. And as you get better at using the engine, the brains can run faster. And over time, the same engine performs better because you've been able to wring out all the optimizations. And so that's known. We knew what Hopper would be a year and a half ago. A chip that in most workloads is one and a half to two times faster than the A100. We knew what they would say. Oh, it's seven times faster. We knew everybody who knows about chips would roll their eyes and yawn. And the people who use it would get between one and a half and two times faster, unless they were memory constrained, in which they get zero. And so I think these are the battlefield, the landscape that one competes on and one knows about going in when one chooses to build processors. I guess like one extra risk with what you know, you're doing is you're walking into sort of like a nascent market. Like I would imagine building sort of custom hardware for an existing application to be quite clear what, what the market size is and what you could yeah. get if you really want it. Like, how did you think about the market? Like, did you look at like inference and training separately? Were there kind of other ways that you segmented exactly what you were? There are two ways to view the first part of your question. One is to say that it's harder when the market is emerging, when there's a dislocation. Even the customers don't know exactly what they're going to be doing in six or nine months. And if instead you went into a mature market, Nobody's changed in a long time. You know exactly what to build. Historically, mature markets favor incumbents, all right? They also know exactly what to build. And they make fewer mistakes in mature markets. The dislocation created by AI in compute, the new challenges that have left AMD with zero share and Intel with zero share and gave us the opportunity those are challenging for NVIDIA too. And in some sense, level the playing field. It's never really level. It's always in their favor. But they give, historically speaking, that sort of dislocation creates opportunities for new vendors. 
And so we look for them. We look for the rise of new types of work. In the mid-90s, there was the rise of a new type of work. And that was being able to do in hardware a memory lookup, an address lookup. And because we could do that in hardware, we began building switches and routers in hardware. And it created what we think of today as data networking. In the mid-aughts, there was a change in work where people, for the first time in general compute, said, what if we gave up performance in favor of battery life? That's the cell phone. That's ARM. How come Intel and AMD and they knew how to make processors. Why did they have zero shares? Because the landscape changed. And the dislocation was what they used to value performance was no longer relevant in long battery life. It was really relevant. Whereas all the other compute, you could always just plug it in. And so these dislocations are the places where great companies emerge. And that's where NVIDIA emerged, the initial dislocation that created a second chip off the processor that would do graphics and continue to leave graphics so important that it couldn't be sucked onto the processor. That dislocation created about 20 companies of which the last two are NVIDIA and ATI that was acquired by AMD. Well, look, I totally agree. Like you're really preaching the choir that sort of like change favors the small company. I mean, that's, that's what I also look for as an entrepreneur, even within machine learning. I love it when it like switches to something. I feel like we surely we can move you know, faster than some of the big it, cloud it, providers. It, it, that's right. If we can't move faster than them, then we've got, then as my old soccer coach used to say, Andrew, we're small, but we're slow. <laughs> that's a bad place to be. But Andrew, so I put myself in your shoes though. What even is the lead time, like if you kind of realize something's changing that you could take advantage of with a new way of setting up your chip, like I guess I imagine that it's like years before. Years. I imagine that it's like hundreds of millions of dollars that you need to convince someone to give you to even try it. So I would think that you would really need to have, you need to be very convincing about the market opportunity in a way that we don't need to be at, at weights and biases. Look, I think with biases and other software companies that the dynamic is very different in software is vastly more modifiable. I think one of fundamental challenges in hardware architecture, given and knowing that your chip will be delivered two and a half years down the road, if you're lucky, and that it's often unknowable what customers will do is deciding what part of it is general and programmable and which part is fixed. And getting that right is the essence, one of the essences of being a good computer architect. It is when we built this architecture, we had never heard of, nor had it been invented at a transformer been invented. And yet we're the fastest in the industry at it by more than an order of magnitude. And that's because what we got right was not that there would be a transformer, but that it would rely on sparse linear algebra as an underpinning. And that we could build up from sparse linear algebra to solve what the AI community calls a transformer. And that is a fundamental part of computer architecture, is at a different type of mass, right? Had everybody gone to single-shot learning based on a Bayesian approach using something else we would have had the dead wrong architecture. But what happened was everybody stayed within a foundation that we predicted correctly. And that's that these problems could be broken down into linear algebraic elements. And in particular, sparse linear algebraic elements. We bet on that for a number of reasons, including there wouldn't really be a compute platform if they went a different direction. Because we knew the GPU also required matrix by matrix multiplication. And so we used our knowledge of the landscape, our understanding of the history of compute, what was available out there to make some bets that we would be able to resolve a class of problems with this basis, this foundation. That's what you have to do. How do you know how many of these things to build? Like how do you manage that? I dream of having zero cost of goods and no inventory challenges. And yet I do my fifth hardware company. 
It'd be so nice. Oh, look, I just send him one. Oh, look, <laughs> another customer on the SaaS. How nice is that? You have to enjoy the challenge. You have to enjoy the complexity. We have hundreds of components. We have vendors around the world. You have to get your forecast right. You have to have a reasonable estimate early on. You have to, you can build the largest, fastest chip on earth. You can get your forecast right for the unit and a single power supply vendor can cause you not to be able to ship for a month's end. How cool is that? You got to get that right. And that's why historically hardware companies are worth a ton is because they are really challenging to get right. Are there parts like outside of the chip that are big technical problems? Like I would imagine like the chip cool is an issue, like this powering it an issue. Like does it even fit in like a normal data center rack? It, does. Like- <laughs> it fits in a normal data center rack. So your audience knows our solution is 15 rack units. So that's what 26 inches, 26 and a half inches tall. It fits in a standard 19 inch rack. It's about a meter deep. It comes in two flavors. It can be air-cooled or it can be cooled with water, and it can go in a standard data center. But yeah, the delivering power to and the cooling was a real challenge, a challenge for everybody. NVIDIA wanted, on a DGX, they wanted a cool front bezel. Only the one they made, you can't run the machine with it because it blocks airflow. And so that gold bezel is only for photographs. We had to invent some interesting techniques to deliver power to a chip this big, how to cool it. Is the liquid cooled one so I can put it under my desk and it's not loud? Is that, I mean, why why do you even have a liquid cooled version? All of our versions use water to move heat off the wafer. In the air cooled version, we have in the machine, something that looks like a radiator that they don't like it when I say this, but it's 110 year old technology Basically, it spreads the surface area of the water, and then the fans blow cold air across it, so the exhaust is warm air. In the water-cooled version, we use water to move heat off the wafer, and the water is then cooled with facility water in a water-to-water exchanger. And so for those facilities that have water, you run their copper pipes right next to your copper pipes, and so the exhaust there is warm water. What, does a typical data center have water to do More that? and more of them do, yeah. Turns out water is a vastly more efficient way to cool than air. The number of hard problems we had to solve, Lucas, in this project was extraordinary. And it's been an amazing journey. We're engineers. We think that really smart guys and smart people can confront a problem that they haven't confronted before using good engineering discipline and methodology and learning from mistakes and get better and better and can do so without ego, can read the papers that have been written, can talk to people at events in the industry and learn and can produce exceptional results in multiple elements. We see no reason why it can't be. And so that's why we attack these problems. What do you feel like you got wrong back in 2016, 2017? Like it's, it seems amazing, you know, like what you got right. But if you could send a message like back in time, what would be the top bullet points? When we, by 2017, everybody was talking about ResNet 50 and vision. And we spent way too much time there. The GPUs for little networks were okay at it. We made a bet to go big on NLP. That was a great bet if I'd have done it a year earlier. It would have been way better. One of my board members said, you need to build a facility in Toronto. And I was like, that dude, man, he's always telling me to do shit I don't know how to do. And a year later, I started building a group in Toronto. We have nearly 100 people, and I wish I'd have started a year earlier. I wish. Toronto is an exceptional place entrepreneurs to build out organizations. The University of Toronto has exceptional people. Waterloo has exceptional people. The engineering culture is first rate. I should have listened and I hesitated because you know and hadn't done it before. The number of mistakes, and you know this, when you make a hundred decisions a day as a CEO, the number of mistakes you can accumulate in a week is large. <laughs> you know, you get four four or five things wrong a day and you're doing great. At the end of the week, it's like, I made 20, how many bad decisions? This week, how many mistakes did I make? 
Well, I think especially in your case, though, the feedback cycles are a lot slower and the decisions seem harder. And like when I think about what I was thinking in 2016, I mean, that was a long time ago for, time. for ML. Like TensorFlow had just launched, I think. TensorFlow had just launched. The things we were thinking about, Cafe 2, should we support Cafe? There was even something, some other framework that I've forgotten about. Yeah, this community has moved unbelievably quickly and it's extraordinary. And I guess, what are you seeing now? Like, what are you like trying to support given that it's like two or three years before, are you working on like a new version? And you always have to be, Lucas. You never stop. You're on the treadmill. You commit to that treadmill. You are on it. So I don't know if this is like a top secret, but I'm just curious, like what kinds of stuff, like what are like the new requirements that you like want to support in two to three years? You're always looking at which customers' workloads are. You're engaged in conversations with them about what they want to do. You're looking at things that surprised you. We bet big on NLP, stable diffusion and DALI. Those were more surprising, this interaction between vision models and large NLP networks, the models that are going text to video. And you're trying to unpack them to understand what are they doing the same and what are they doing different? And what part of your architecture that is fixed maybe ought to be flexible? And what part of your architecture that you thought needed to be flexible, everybody's agreed on that and we can now be fixed. And we'll give you an example from a competitor. In the A100, NVIDIA included circuitry for a three-by-three convolution because everybody was talking about ResNets. Now, when you run transformers, that ensures your utilization is abysmal across those circuits. There's an example of they went to fix and they got it wrong. And I think we try and understand and make bets, not at the application level, but at their underpinnings. Also, you have this list of things that you wish you'd have done last time and couldn't get in time. You've got issues that had to be resolved that you had to work around. And that's the nature of chip building. Do you feel concerned that, I guess this is like an opportunity. Like I talked to some of our bigger customers and it seems like they're really essentially starting to build their own data centers around A100s. Like what would you deliver? Do you typically deliver like the whole bunch of your chips like network together and we do right more and more we're delivering clusters with millions and millions of cores yeah i think that's a good sign for us when is it really hard for a startup to hardware company when you've got to go to many different enterprises and they want to buy one and you need a sales guy in North Carolina and you need a sales guy in upstate New York and sort of the enterprise sales model. That's not really what we're seeing. We're seeing those who are in AI buying big and they're looking to deploy thousands or tens of thousands of GPUs. And if you can show them competitive advantage, balls out there, you got to go win it. And I guess, where are you seeing the biggest pull from the market? This would be a useful thing for me to know as well, because I assume if someone's spending as much as they need to spend on your stuff, they should probably spend a little bit on monitoring it and wait till no, we, we, we have lots of customers in common. That You guys have done well in the big pharma spaces and with some oil and gas guys that we have, have in common. I think that the surprise for me of late has been this rocket ship that was Jasper and stability and adept. And this, you can keep naming them Cohere and Anthropic. And the evaluations, the businesses, we announced Jasper was a customer of ours and got to know Dave a little bit and his team over there. And they're doing unbelievably big numbers up from nothing. And they may be one of the fastest growing software companies in memory. And I think that was all unforecast a year and a half ago. It was like open AI and everybody's looking there. And this, these guys, many of them are going to drop nine figures in training next year. And so all of those are new and interesting opportunities like that nobody was talking about nine months ago. It's funny, I guess another thing, I feel like almost everyone, almost everyone, many, many, many people do this stuff in the Cloud, do you feel like it's important that you kind of offer a way to rent your we do. hardware? We do. I think for the big models, 
it's really hard to do in the cloud because you need dedicated clusters. You need guaranteed latency between your nodes. I mean, the largest node you can buy from AWS is eight GPUs. You know, if you want 160, you're going to get 28 node instances. And those instances, you've got no guarantees on latencies, latencies between them. What a mess. What we're seeing is those guys who want lots going to people and asking them to do dedicated clusters that are leased. I think for most people under 30 in our industry, they don't spend a lot of time thinking about the hardware, right? Hardware isn't a thing like I think about it. It's something you put software on. And that's, and so we, we have to change and adapt with the times. And so if they want to rent instances, if they want to rent cluster time, if they want to rent by the model, you know, we announced last week an approach where you can pay by the model, you know, train GPTJ to chinchilla accuracy, you know, it's $45,000, this many tokens, bring your data, let's go. You want to train GPT. 70 billion, great. It's this many tokens, bring your data. We tell you how long it's going to take and let's go. That's a different way to consume. And so we do think that providing, I mean, it's not skin off our teeth. We can provide, you want to buy it, if you want to rent it, if you want to buy the hour, buy the hour. It's the same. I bet that's not a small undertaking just on the software side to make it reliable and consumable and all that. Yeah, I think. Once you've compiled PyTorch, man, making it cloud available is not the hard problem. It's a messy problem. It's not a hard problem. And I think it takes some thinking through. It's funny, you know, we, I mean, we've obviously you know, partnered with some hardware companies and I think I never, I mean, I'm over 40, so I'm not so young, but I never really understood what like waterfall development was. Like I think Agile sort of in response to this thing that I actually never witnessed, you know, until we started like engaging with some oh. hardware companies. And I was really... It was just like shocking to see their like engineering mindset, which on one hand, I, I like really respect it, but I think it would be, it seems like it might be hard for a company that's so geared up to like do these things with these like long lead times where you really need to get it right to sort of like build these things where you're really like iterating daily with, with if, customers. If chip design takes two and a half years, weak sprints are probably the wrong thing to be engaging with. And that's why there are very few individual engineering leaders who successfully lead both. We have a leader in hardware and we have a leader in software because they have different cultures. And even in software, I mean, if you're solving algorithmic problems or you're a PhD in optimization theory, right, you also likely aren't doing sprints every few days. On the other hand, other parts of the software organization are. And so I think there's no one size fits all. I think thoughtful engineering leadership relates or brings together a methodology with the characteristic of the problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, software, upper layer software is sprints. Chips are marathons. They're marathons. And the guys who do them, they what they're extremely good at is their marathon pace. You know, you watch those East African guys who were the world's best at it, and they're doing what? They're doing 26 and a half miles at four something, 450. Yeah, it feels I mean, like a sprint to me. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, that pace is mind-boggling, right? Best in the world. That pace is profoundly different. The way they train is profoundly different from the people who run 100 or 200s. And I think thinking carefully about what is the characteristic of the problem, what are the norms, how are you going to organize your engineering leadership team, how are you going to organize your processes mm-hmm. ought to relate to the problem you're trying to solve. That makes sense. Look, we always end with two questions and I think we might need to slightly reinterpret them to make sense for me, but I'd love to get your vantage point on this. Um, We usually ask, you know, what's an under investigated part of machine learning or what's something that warrants more study? I'm wondering if from your vantage point, you have a perspective on that. Lucas, when I was working on my PhD, I would spend all this time in class working on mathematics and statistics. And all this time when I was doing research, cleaning data. I know. The gap between what you studied and what you did was so unbelievably large. I think an underappreciated area is the data pipeline, the managing of these interesting data sets. And I think sometimes it's kicked off by IT groups. I think 
the having a strategic vision around what data is going to be collected. If you collect it all, it has negative value too. You got so much you can't work through. Really, this area that's upstream of us, a step or two, which is the strategy, the management, the cleaning, the storing, the data husbandry, I think is profoundly under-discussed. The tools are nascent, a lot of opportunity there. I totally agree. All right. And final question is, when you look at the full life cycle of an ML model from someone kind of thinking of it to building it, but then to also like in production, like doing something useful <laughs> for someone, where do you see the surprising bottlenecks or what's kind of the hardest part of that full journey? Yeah, that's really a good question. I think when that model starts being deployed, and I think you just saw this with OpenAI's chatbot or with Meta's, I think data scientists sometimes and AI practitioners approach the development of a model differently than we would in software. I mean, we thoughtful QA matrices, right? With an understanding of what has been tested and what hasn't been tested. Those are really hard. And so you got your model, you've tried it and it did the distributed computing painful. You tossed your hair out. It meets a ton of data at first, and you're not sure how long that debug process is going to take. And, you know, when I was a young engineering leader and I'd ask my guys, when the hell, when are we going to finish debugging? And they'd say, Andrew, plumbing the depths, you don't know. And it would make me so uncomfortable. There'd be physical uncomfort when peeling the onion and there's just more onion. You keep peeling it. All you can see is onion and onion. I think that stage is, takes people vastly longer than they anticipate. And could improve, could benefit from some methodological improvements as well. Yeah, we hear that. Yeah, I think that's what we see anyway. No, that makes sense. And it's a frustrating time. We always tell our guys that that last 10% isn't 10%. That last bet turns out not to be only 10%. It's a lot longer because you're you're not actually at the 90% mark when you think you are. You're at the 65 or 70% mark. Well, I feel like in software that's bad, but in ML, you may never get there. Like it's not even like clear that, you know, what's actually possible. We've been studying things we don't know if they're answers to, studying theory. We've been doing science for years. There is a research methodology that's put to bear even when you're not sure there is an answer. And so I think that the community's learning and improving. But I think that there are joint pressures. There's a drive to get your cool new model out and get that big publication and have your stable diffusion moment where everybody goes, whoa, like that, where a whole industry takes a gas and says, holy cow, and you can run it on your laptop, right? And you push that out and you want that so badly. These are complicated things. And it's going to take a while before we roll them out sort of a know exactly that they're fully QA'd and ready for the world. All right. One final curveball question. I'm just curious right. if you have a thought on this. A lot of people have been noticing that the M1, the MacBook chips, like are pretty fast for ML workloads. Do you feel like Apple might enter this market in a bigger way? Is that something you think about? Look at Apple's the greatest company in the last 50 years, right? If you think of market cap and you think of where they are in the economy, we moved from, would you rather have your keys or your phone? I'd rather have my phone. My phone's got a credit card in there. I can get wherever I want with Uber. I mean, they're better than your wallet. They passed your wallet. They passed your keys. They passed. I mean, think of the things that that they're better than. They have tried on several occasions to do B2B and be enterprise, and it's been harder for them. That's a DNA shift for them. And my guess is if they did it, they'd do it for internal use first rather than third-party service. Makes sense. But the things that they do know, they were among the first to realize that it really, in your laptop, faster processor is good, but better resolution monitor is really good. And they have done a lot of thinking about 
joint optimization of hardware and software in particular in, in display. If they wanted to, I'm sure they have the skills and expertise to build a park that could run about well too. Thanks so much for your time. This is really fun. It's fun chatting with you and it's really fun to, to have a conversation with you. If you're enjoying these interviews and you want to learn more, please click on the link to the show notes in the description where you can find links to all the papers that are mentioned, supplemental material, and a transcription that we work really hard to produce. So check it out.